Good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the clergy here at St. Nick's. And today I'm kicking off our two-part series on our vision, looking at the core values of what makes the church the church, what our vision is here at St. Nick's, what we think God is saying to us about our mission here in the city of Bristol, King of Cities. Oh, you know what? I was really hoping that there was going to be a giant version of my head bobbing around on this new screen. I could feel a bit like Superman's dad, but it's not happening, is it? Um, so yeah, as we, anyway, moving on from my strange requests. Um, to do this together tonight, we're going to unpack uh, a passage together from the book of Acts, which is one of my favorite interactions in the whole Bible. So grab your Bible or your phone or whatever it is you use. It'll be up on the screens as well. And let's read this together now to kick off. So it's from Acts 8, 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Definitely just saw a few lads wince in here, don't worry. The word gets less shocking the more times you hear it throughout the passage. Um, so he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home he was sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard a man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Great, so what is going on here? Well, Philip, a guy who's come to faith in the early church, is being led by God, and he's sent to a specific road. And then while he's making that journey, God speaks to him again and leads him over to a specific guy. And that guy is reading some scripture from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and the guy can't understand what he's reading, so Philip explains it to him, unpacking it together. Philip shows him how the passage relates to Jesus. Philip shares his faith with the guy, and the man comes to faith in Jesus. And he says, look, there's water here. Is there anything to stop me being baptized? So Philip baptizes the man into his newfound faith in Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit leads Philip on from there. And the other man goes on his way rejoicing, as the passage says, in the newfound freedom that he's received in giving his life to Jesus. 
This is an amazing encounter. I'm always blown away by it when I read it. It's so exciting to hear this story. But mostly I love it because I think it shows us so clearly two important things that are so easy to forget and I always need to be reminded of. And the first is this. God is already at work. The Holy Spirit sends Philip to a specific road and then over towards a specific carriage to do the work of God, right? But what does Philip find when he gets there? He doesn't find a really hard struggle to even create a situation where he might be able to talk about the things of Jesus. He doesn't even find a blank slate, a guy that's, you know, open to hearing maybe what Philip might have to say. He finds a man who is already searching for God. A man who God is already breaking through to. He finds a guy who's grappling with a piece of the Bible that is talking directly about Jesus. He doesn't understand it, but he's struggling to. Philip finds that God is already at work. God is not distant or far off. He didn't create the world and leave it to its own devices. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters before creation even began, and he never left. Every page of scripture, the whole narrative, shows time and time again that God is not willing to let his creation destroy itself. He gets involved. He rolls up his sleeves. He uses his people. He speaks by his spirit. He steers the course of history. He anoints people to bring his hope, his teaching, his will. And ultimately, he comes into the world himself in Jesus, jumping into the thick of it to show the way to freedom and to bring about the restoration of all things. God is on a mission to make all things new. To bring it all back to how it was meant to be. Good and beautiful and peaceful. And it can be so easy to see that big picture, right? To know it. To know that God is at work in this big, overarching restoration narrative. And forget that it applies to the tiny details of our lives, right? The individual details of our days. One of the times I learned this most was during one of the hardest times in my life. Three years ago, while I was training to be a vicar, uh, one of my friends that I'd been to school with and grown up with tragically ended his life. It came as a complete shock to all of us. We'd been that kind of archetypal group of stupid young men who don't ever talk about anything real or how they're actually feeling. Um, side note, please don't do that. We've talked about it already tonight, but when you have those dark days, which we all do, please reach out to someone. But we had been that stupid group of young men who didn't have real chat, and we hadn't known that our friend was struggling, and we were obviously absolutely heartbroken to have lost him. There are no words for that feeling. But one of the things that I found especially difficult and painful was that I was the only one in my group of friends who knew Jesus. And as far as I knew, uh, my friend hadn't known Jesus. And to be real with you, I was absolutely furious with God. I raged and I railed at him. I went out onto the Bristol Downs up where we lived at that time. And it was chucking it down with rain and there was no one else around. And I screamed at him. I was furious that he'd allowed this to happen. And I was furious that because of where he'd called me in life into ministry, I hadn't been around. And I remember as I felt all the weight of that, which is obviously a natural part of grief, 
I turned it all on God and I accused him. And I said, what on earth are you doing sending me here to be surrounded by all these Christians doing all this nicey, nicey church stuff? When one of my friends, someone that I loved and didn't know you, felt so hopeless that he ended his life. And later that day when I was washing up, I heard God's reply. God very rarely speaks to me audibly, uh, but this time he did. And he said to me, Josh, don't you think that I might have loved Sam more than you ever could? And don't you think that I was at work in his life more than you were? It totally floored me. And I couldn't do anything but thank God for his faithfulness. Because as much as I didn't want to feel it in that season, as much as I didn't feel it in that season, of course it was true. His love for those he has created is so much bigger than me. His work in their lives is so much bigger than us, right? God is already at work. He cares more than we do. He has been at work since before we were born. He loves Bristol more than we ever could. As we step out into Bristol with our vision to play our part in the evangelization of the nation, telling people about Jesus, the revitalization of the church, planting churches, and the transformation of society, meeting the needs of the most broken in our city. As we step out to do all those things, we step out to join in with the God who's already at work, who's already rolled up his sleeves a long time ago, and whose heart for Bristol is beyond our comprehension. As you stand on the door to welcome people into this building, you are joining in with the God of welcome, who has already welcomed people into the kingdom of God. As you speak to that friend about your faith and share the gospel with them, you're coming alongside the God who's already given himself for them and who's been stirring their heart towards his kindness their whole life. As you get involved with issues of social justice, working for the hungry, the downtrodden, the abused, the ignored, you're joining in with the God of justice who declares himself as the God of widows and orphans, the God who's been raising up his church to fight for the last and the least since the church began. As you seek to be a witness to the gospel of the transformation Jesus has brought in your own life, in your office, in your home, in your halls, in your lectures, you aren't taking God with you, as it can be so easy to feel and all the weight that brings, but you're meeting him there where he's already at work and where he's placed you to join in with him. As we, as a church planting church plant, send churches out across this city, we're not sending them into uncharted waters, but into communities where every street, every house, every person is known by God, where he's already been working at that in their midst and we get the joy of meeting him in that and picking up on what he's doing. Our tagline here at St. Nick's, in the city, for the city, is nothing more than us taking up the call of God and answering an invitation to join in with the God who's always been in this city and has always been for this city. God is at work. He always has been. He is making all things new. And as we step out to serve him, to get involved, we're not doing it alone. We're meeting him where he already is. So why does God need you to roll up your sleeves and get involved? Short answer, he doesn't. 
He is the all-powerful King of kings, the Lord of all creation. He snapped his fingers and everything that exists came into being. In fact, he didn't even need to snap his fingers. As he sets out to restore the world, to bring goodness and wholeness, peace and joy to the world, to set right the wrongs, he doesn't need your help, but he wants it. Not for the task, but for time with you, for his relationship with you. My wife Hannah and I have a six-month son called Amos, and Amos is literally the coolest person I have ever met. I mean, try and get a pint with him after the service. The guy is so cool. And ever since Amos was born, he has loved punk rock. I mean, he loves it. He's an avid fan of the classics. You know, he really knows and gets all the history and roots of the genre. He understands why the clash are so groundbreaking for the genre as a whole. And he gets how it was just because of their cultural moment that the Sex Pistols ever made it big because they're actually rubbish. And Amos even, you know, he loves his 90s and noughties pop punk on those days when he's feeling a bit cheesy. And he loves neo-punk, you know, the new kids on the block. He loves his Bristol local heroes, idols. The kid can't get enough of their pumping lyrics. I'm sure that's where most of his politics come from. In fact, Amos is such a punk rock devotee that ever since Amos has been able to have a bath, he immediately changed bath time into punk rock bath time, where the entirety of the bath is to be spent singing punk rock tunes together. And Amos puts in his request for what song he wants next, you know, depending on his mood. And if Hannah or Granny and Grandad, Nana and Grandpa, uncles, aunts, friends, if anyone wants to join Amos and I for bath time, the cost of admission is that they have to sing their favorite punk rock tune. These are just the rules Amos has made and lives by. Shall I be honest with you? Seeing as he's only six months old, can't talk, and doesn't seem to know a lot of what's going on around him, I don't think Amos is actually as big a punk rock fan as I'm trying to make out. But you know what? I am. And I absolutely love to sing my favorite songs to my boy. And I love to see him laugh and smile at his dad as I'm singing to him. And to pop him in little t-shirts of my favorite bands. And I love to imagine one day the two of us going to a gig together for a band that we both love. Because I love the music. And I want to share it with my son, who I also love. And that's what I think we see in the heart of God as he invites us into his work to make all things new. He could do it alone. He is strong enough and powerful enough. He could probably do it way better without us, in fact. But he chooses to invite us into what he's doing, to do it together. Because he loves us just as much as he loves the work that he's doing. And so he wants to do it together. He wants to see his heart become our heart. His desires to become our desires. His work to become our work. Because he wants a deep and intimate relationship with us. I love how we see that from Philip in our passage. There's a small detail in this passage that has huge significance. In verse 29, God says to Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. And the next verse reads, Philip ran to the chariot. He was told to go and he runs. He doesn't walk, he doesn't amble, he doesn't even speed walk, he runs. 
And for context, when this happened, um, culturally, self-respecting men did not run. It was seen as deeply undignified. I can relate to this. I mean, I think when I'm out and about, and, you know, I'm sat out at a bar having a nice pint or having a burger or bimbling along to wherever I'm going, and I see some weird individual run past me with their funny lycra and their Fitbit and their water bowl and their smug face, I too think, ugh, how undignified. <laughs> well, this was even more so in Philip's day. It would have been a huge deal for a man of his standing to run. And yet, Philip runs. He is so excited to see what God is doing. So eager to be involved in what God is doing. So keen for the intimacy with the Father who made him and transformed him. He couldn't possibly just go. He's got to go as quick as his feet will carry him. He longs for the intimacy that comes from joining God in his work. The insights into God's character that come when you work alongside him. When you see his heart in action, the joy of being close to God. I've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple of weeks, having heard the sad news of the death of Brother Andrew. If you haven't heard of Brother Andrew, I'd really recommend to you his book, God's Smuggler. He was a man who spent his life being led by God to do extraordinary things. He smuggled Bibles beyond the Iron Curtain during the era of the Soviet Union. Time and time again, he crossed the border into the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain with enough Bibles to land himself at the very least in prison, but far more likely to be killed. His famous prayer that he used to pray as he got to the border is so cool. I'll read it to you now. It was this. Lord, in my luggage, I have scripture that I want to take to your children. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray that you would make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see the things that you do not want them to see. What faith. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, he continued for the rest of his life to support the church in areas of persecution. Smuggling Bibles, literature and preachers into the most dangerous corners of the globe for our brothers and sisters. To bolster and encourage the church there. He established Open Doors, a, ch a charity that holds that same heart and takes it forward into the world that is evolving around it and still today spend all their time supporting the church in areas where being a Christian most likely means, means death or imprisonment if discovered. He was truly an incredible man of God and he and God clearly went on the wildest of adventures together. I had the absolute pleasure a few years ago to be asked to go with my spiritual mentor to Open Doors uh, to preach to their staff team and share a story of my encounter with the persecuted church. And afterwards, uh, my friend and I spent some time praying with the current CEO of Open Doors. And we were praying, and as we were praying, he said something quite astounding. He said, I'd also really value your prayers for Brother Andrew. His sight is starting to really fail him in his old age. And this is a deeply painful thing for him because it means he can't spend as much time a day reading scripture as he would like to. He was losing his eyesight. And rather than just wanting prayer for that, he wanted prayer that he was going to be able to read scripture for longer. He was, <laughs> he was in pain because he was losing his eyesight because it meant he couldn't spend as long a day dwelling in the word of God as he wanted. 
If that doesn't point to a life spent joining in God's work for the sheer joy of intimacy with Jesus, then I don't know what does. For him, it clearly wasn't about the task or the drama of it or the danger, the cost, the sacrifice. It was about the joy of being with his father. Closer to home, I loved hearing about someone who came to St. Nick's for the first time the week before last. And they're a bit early, so they said, like, no worries. Um, if you give me a hello lanyard, I'll just jump on the door and I'll welcome people in. I love that. That's so clearly not about serving St. Nick's, but just about joining in with your father as he welcomes people in. I love that. Jesus has promised that he is making everything new. Jesus keeps his promises. Jesus has won. In his death and resurrection, he has the victory. He is making all things new. The all-powerful God who created everything with a word does not need your help or require assistance. And yet, he invites you in to join alongside him, to take your place and the role that comes with it, to dive into the thick of it because he longs for a relationship with you. We understand most the God who rolled up his sleeves and got stuck in when we join him in doing likewise. Jesus doesn't need our expertise, our time, our efforts, but he utterly delights in having us join alongside him as he restores and renews all things because he desires closeness with you. Where might you roll up your sleeves today and join the God who's already rolled up his? Why don't I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not distant and far off. When you saw creation going wrong, you didn't think, fine, I'll leave it and I'll go on and do something else. But you go the distance. You jump into the mess. You meet us where we are. You fight to restore and renew all things in every situation. Lord, I thank you that you invite us into that, that crazy, beautiful mission of yours, because you long for relationship and intimacy with us. You want to spend time with us. You want to work alongside us. Lord, we pray it would always be astounding to us that you invite us into your incredible work. And Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would show each one of us where we can join alongside you this week in your beautiful work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.